Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. This week will mark the 506th anniversary of the nailing of the 95 Theses by Martin Luther on the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany. So, why should we care? Well, join us now for the message, Nailed It, Reformation Sunday. Welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. This week will mark the 506th anniversary of the nailing of the 95 Theses by Martin Luther on the church door at Wittenberg, Germany. So why should we care? Well, listen a little bit later on for our message on Nailed It for Reformation Sunday. Today is Reformation Sunday. That's why even though the normal color for this season is green, I am in my finest red stole today in commemoration of that. This morning's scripture is from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Listen now to the word of God. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. The first two times that I went to the Holy Land, I did so with a group that was led by the associate pastor of my parents' church. And later that same pastor also led us on a Footsteps of Paul tour through the country of Turkey. And on that tour, we Methodists shared a bus with the Lutherans. Well, we had decided that anyone who wanted to could help with the daily devotionals. And I was, the, I was assigned the devotional for the day that we were going to go into the city of Tarsus. Now that is where you may recall that the Apostle Paul had been born and raised before moving to Jerusalem as a young man. And I was up very late the night before that we arrived in Taurus trying to, to think of something for the devotional the next day. And then it occurred to me, there's this direct historical line between the Apostle Paul, Martin Luther, and John Wesley. Now, I've told you before that story of John Wesley and the beginnings of the Methodist movement. After feeling that he had utterly failed in his quest to convert the American Indians to Christianity, and after being spurned by the young woman that he was in love with, Wesley returned to London a broken man, and he entered into what we would now call nowadays a clinical depression. But one evening, a friend cajoled him into attending a worship service at St. Paul's Cathedral, followed by a Bible study meeting at the house, uh, at a house on Aldersgate Street there in London. And while at the Bible study, as he was listening to the reading, John had this epiphany in which he later wrote in his journal, 
About a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Well, from there, John was finally able to emerge from his depression, and along with his brother Charles, began a lifetime of ministry that would kick off the Methodist movement and result in the establishment of the Methodist Church both in Britain and in America and later throughout the world. But ever wonder what Wesley was listening to that so had strangely warmed his heart and his life? Well, that night he was listening to the preface to Martin Luther's magisterial commentary on the book of Romans. Well, as most of you know, Martin Luther was the 16th century Roman Catholic priest who set off the Protestant Reformation. And the beginning of the Protestant Reformation is dated from October 31st, 1517. And then the Sunday that's preceding October 31st, which would be today, is called Reformation Sunday. And just six years ago, in 2017, we commemorated Protestantism's 500th anniversary. But before he became a fearless firebrand, Martin Luther was a very scared young man. Luther spent the first decades of his life in mortal fear of God. He despaired of ever being able to please God or ever being able to attain salvation. He believed that the sinfulness of humanity and especially of himself was so pervasive that none of us were likely to ever be able to escape damnation. And not only did Luther fear God, he later confessed that he grew increasingly angry at God for setting up humanity in this impossible situation. He said he even came to the point where he felt hatred toward God. Well, Luther had been born to a prosperous German family in the year 1484, and he was sent to law school as a young man. And one day in 1505, at the age of 21, Luther got caught in this vicious thunderstorm where he very nearly died from a lightning strike. In desperation, he called out to St. Anne for deliverance and promised God that if he survived the storm, he would become a monk. And so he survived, and much to the chagrin of his family who had sent him to law school, he quit law school and joined the Augustinian order, and he was ordained a priest in 1507. Well, Luther was eventually sent to the university in Wittenberg to teach theology. And in 1515, he began to preach, or excuse me, to teach Paul's letter to the Romans. And you ever, you've heard that saying that the best way to learn something is to teach it? Well, Martin Luther started teaching the book of Romans, and that was when the real message of Romans finally began to sink into Luther's heart and mind. He finally began to see that salvation was a gift from God. And he didn't have to be good enough or to do anything to earn it. All he had to do was to have faith through Jesus Christ that God truly loved him and had forgiven him. Later, Luther wrote in his journal, Then I grasp that through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on new meaning. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. 
Well, now that, tr- now that Luther truly understood God's grace, several of the practices of the 16th century church began to bother him. And chief among these was the sale of indulgences. To raise money, the church allowed an individual to make a contribution to the church called an indulgence that would offset the amount of time a soul had to spend in purgatory. Purgatory was believed to be a state where a person's soul was purified from sin by going through fire before being admitted into heaven. And so indulgences could be purchased for either oneself or for a predeceased loved one. And ad campaigns were, were, were created, and these ad campaigns tried to lay on the guilt, telling people that while they were enjoying all of the worldly pleasures that money could buy, mom or dad was suffering the agony of burning flames in purgatory. And if they truly loved them, they would cough up some cash and would leave so that their loved ones could leave the flames of purgatory and finally make it into the paradise of heaven. And in fact, there was a new push to raise the, uh, the sale of indulgences because the Pope wanted Michelangelo to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And so the local seller of indulgences in Germany even had a jingle. As soon as the coin and the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Well, essentially, you could buy your way or a loved one's way out of purgatory and into heaven. And Luther, for some reason, saw a problem with this. And so he wrote his famous 95 theses condemning this, pra- uh, this particular practice as well as a lot of other things in, that was going on in the church that he disagreed with. And as the famous story goes, he nailed his list of theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, where he was teaching there in that university. And he did this on October 31st, 1517. So thus, October 31st is considered the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And this was, this was a watershed moment. And I mean, not just in the history of the church, but in the history of the world. This was a watershed moment, the nailing of these uh, 95 theses. And by posting his theses on the church door, this was the 16th century equivalent, basically a posting on social media. If you wanted to make a public statement, you wrote, you wrote it down and you nailed it at the door of the local church. And once Luther nailed them to the church doors, these theses, essentially, they went viral. And they were quickly printed and then printed again and again on the newly printed movable, movable type printing press. And as the theses were distributed, Luther quickly gained notoriety. And he was the very first person in history to become a best-selling author. Well, eventually his arguments reached the attention of the Pope, who in 1520 issued a decree condemning Luther. And in defiance, Luther publicly burned the papal decree. And the following year, the Pope excommunicated him, and the emperor declared him an outlaw. The Protestant Reformation was on. Well, the next year, at the Diet of Worms, in this case, the word diet refers to not a system of eating, but to an assembly, in this case, held in the German city of Worms. So the Diet of Worms is not a disgusting new weight loss program. It was an actual assembly in the city of Worms in 1521. Here, Luther was given a chance to renounce his writings, He refused, therefore uttering his most famous quotation, Here I stand, 
I can do no other. Luckily for Luther, the local German prince decided to protect him, or otherwise he would have not survived that rebellion. Luther's theology was deeply influenced by the writings of the Apostle Paul, and especially the letter to Romans. And as a result, Luther wrote his masterpiece commentary on the book of Romans that centuries later so moved Wesley's heart to be strangely warmed. In Romans, Paul wrote that not only are we saved by grace through faith now, it had really always been this way, all the way back to the ancestors of the Jews, Abram, who was later called Abraham. In fact, uh, Paul quotes from Genesis when he writes that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now the concept of salvation by grace alone through faith alone became the first two what are called solas or principles that characterize Protestant theology. And because the book of Romans figured so prominently in Luther's theology, this new reliance on scripture led to another one of the five solas, eventually there were five, and this one is sola scriptura or scripture alone. So we have the first three solas, grace alone, faith alone, and scripture alone. Well, in medieval Christianity that had preceded Luther and the Protestant Reformation, the church claimed to have sole authority to interpret Scripture. Scripture meant whatever the church said that it meant. Well, some believe that this meant that the, the Pope had final say over what the Bible meant. Others thought this referred to the official church councils having the final authority. But either way, it was the church that determined what the Scriptures meant. Luther taught that this was the other way around, that the church's teachings should be subject to what Scripture revealed. And whenever he debated a representative of the church, Luther insisted that they back up their arguments by quoting the Bible and not just church tradition. Now, of course, the Catholic Church were not too fond of Luther's criticisms, and they did not let them go unanswered. So even as Luther's uh, writings were being distributed throughout Germany, several Catholic writers published rebuttals of Luther's theses. And so the Catholic defenders offered four main arguments against the ideas of Luther. First of all, for 15 centuries, literally thousands of church theologians through process of councils and consensus had slowly built up the tradition of the church. What were the possibilities that an obscure priest in Germany, which at that time was a little bit of a backwater in Europe, could somehow have stumbled upon the central truth of Christianity that eluded generations of church leaders. I mean, the idea was ludicrous. Hadn't Jesus himself, they said, promised that the Holy Spirit would guide the church's tradition into all the truth, as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Well, the Holy Spirit, they argued, had not been guiding the church tradition, then Jesus' promise was null and void. Secondly, the Bible itself testified that the church would have authority over the scriptures. Church scholars would point not only to that quote from Jesus that I just read, but also to what Jesus said to his leading apostle, Peter. So after confessing that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, 
Jesus turned to Peter and he said these words as recorded in Matthew. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus himself, they argued, gave final authority to Simon Peter, and by extension to his direct successors, the bishops of Rome, also known as the popes. Besides, they further argued, it was the church that finally decided which books to even include in the New Testament and in the Bible. The church had already been in existence for almost 400 years before it more or less agreed on exactly which books to, to, that would constitute Christian scripture. In essence, the church created the Bible, not the other way around. Their third main point, as the Protestant movement gained momentum, it began to splinter into a multitude of different groups whose claims now were contradicting one another. So they argued, depending on sola scriptura, or scripture alone, obviously led to nothing but a babble of confusion. Without the church taking the lead in interpreting scripture, chaos ensued. Besides, they argued, highly trained church scholars Scholars that were schooled in ancient Hebrew and Greek, they had trouble interpreting Scripture. So it was absurd to think that the average person reading the Bible in their own vernacular language was going to be able to understand it properly. In fact, the, the fact that the Protestant movement had already produced dozens of separate groups who were now all arguing amongst themselves only proved their point. Fourth and finally, to question the church was heresy. And heresy inevitably led to political subversion and moral decay. Heresy was essentially rebellion against the church and left unchecked. It would lead to social and political rebellion as well. And in fact, it did. Untold thousands, and probably actually hundreds of thousands, died in the wars of religion that spread through Europe as a result of the Protestant Reformation. It would take another 200 years for the violence that was unleashed by the Protestant Reformation to finally result in the ver various edicts and treaties that established religious toleration. And even then, many religious groups continued to suffer from religious persecution and do so even to this day. As the Catholics understood it, not only would this heresy and rebellion lead to political disorder, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, would become an excuse for moral and ethical laxity and confusion. You see, if good works were not necessary for salvation, then what incentive would people have to lead morally upright lives? And this was going to lead to social disorder and abundant immorality. Wow. Uh, when you consider Luther's arguments against the sale of indulgences and support of the solas of grace alone and faith alone and scripture alone, they make a lot of sense. But when you consider the counter-arguments of the church, some of those make a lot of sense too. And many of the terrible consequences of the Reformation that the Catholic Church predicted and warned about, the splintering of the church, the violence, the chaos, the confusion that ensued, it all came true. So what then are we to believe? Is there any middle way between these two sides that can provide guidance as we try to live out faithfully as disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, perhaps there is a middle way. And that's where John Wesley and the Methodists figure in.
Methodism and the Anglican heritage from which it sprang has always tried to balance the best of Catholicism and the best of Catholicism. In Wesley's writing, we find that he regularly refers to four sources of authority, four norms or measuring sticks by which we discern God's truth and make responsible and faithful decisions about how to live our lives, both personally and in community. And these four sources have been come to known as the quadrilateral. Uh, excuse me, the quadrilateral. The Anglican tradition from which Wesley came recognized three norms. And those norms were scripture, tradition, and reason. And to these three, Wesley added a fourth, experience. And so like other Protestants, we Methodists first looked to scripture. For it's in scripture that we find the foundational story of our faith. We even say that scripture has what we call primacy. For it is in the scripture that we find the record of God's revelation that forms the basis of our faith. Yet unlike other Protestants, we Methodists are actually not believers in sola scriptura or scripture alone. The Bible is our most important authority to be sure. But it's just not our only authority. See, like Catholics, we also value church tradition. And if you think about it, it, it would be foolish for us just to throw away 2,000 years of, church, of Christian discernment. It would be like throwing out everything that your grandparents and parents ever tried to teach you. I mean, imagine like where the field of medicine would be if like every 20 years or so, we simply threw out what the previous generation had learned and we started all over again. We wouldn't get anywhere. And so it's ultimately very arrogant to think that only what our own generation has produced has any value. Therefore, we value the knowledge and the wisdom of those who came before that are found in the tradition of the church. Well, we also look to reason as a source of authority, which has always been esteemed by both Protestants and Catholics. Since we're created in the image of God, we've been endowed with an intelligence that is unique to the human species. Without reason, we would be unable to absorb the wisdom that we find in Scripture and tradition. And so then finally, as Wesley added, we look to our experience to judge what we have discerned through Scripture and tradition and reason. In the end, if what we have come to think and believe doesn't result in us living lives that exhibit the love of God for our neighbor and the alignment of our own minds with the mind of Christ... Or in other words, if what we believe is not really making a difference in our lives, then maybe our thoughts and beliefs are not worth having. So we Methodists, we honor not only scripture, but tradition, reason, and experience as well. And together, these four sources of authority combine to provide us with a reliable and a trustworthy guide to Christian life and faith. Is it a perfect system? No. Does it provide a foolproof plan? Not even close. But I do think it is the best that we have. And it tries to combine the best of what Protestants and Catholics have to offer. But even with these four sources of authority, we must never forget that it is, it is in the end that Christ is the ultimate authority. Christ is the ultimate word of God. As we read there in the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have, held, we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. 
So as complicated as Christian belief and theology can be, and it can be, sometimes perhaps it just boils down to a few simple things. So when in doubt, ask yourself, does this reflect the love of God and the love of neighbor that Jesus commanded? Am I treating others as I would like them to treat me? Am I living a life that resembles and reflects the kind of life that Jesus led? As our tour group sat in the courtyard by the well of Paul's childhood home there in Tarsus, I was able to trace the line from that courtyard to the group of Christians that were now gathered around it. Paul was nurtured in those very walls before going to Jerusalem to continue his education. He later even wrote about that time in his life in his letter to the Galatians. You've heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age where I was far more zealous for the tradition of my ancestors. But God set me apart before I was, bo- before I was born and called me through his grace. Paul had an encounter with grace, which then eventually led him to write his magisterial letter to the Romans, outlining the sweep of that grace. And 1,500 years later, a young priest named Martin Luther, who was scared in the faith by a terrifying thunderstorm and felt that he was never going to be good enough, found grace by reading Paul's letter to the Romans. And so in response to that grace, Luther wrote his masterpiece, his commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. And 200 years after that, a young John Wesley, who felt like an utter failure after his disastrous sojourn to America, sat in a house on Aldersgate Street in London and listened as someone read from Luther's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. And there he finally found grace when he found his heart strangely warmed and was given assurance that God had even forgiven him, even of his sins. From Paul to Martin Luther to John Wesley to a group of Lutherans and Methodists sitting there in Tarsus to this congregation of Trinity United Methodist Church, we can trace the story of God's grace. And I think we are still called to always be reforming the church until that time when it fully reflects the love and grace of God, when it fully reflects the kingdom of God upon this earth. Amen. Now, uh, receive this benediction. May the light of our forebears in faith from the Apostle Paul to Martin Luther, to John Wesley, guide us in the week ahead. And may we be a bearer of light to others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll commemorate All Saints Sunday as we remember all those we have lost in the last year. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. 
If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.